Welcome to the Hospitality Mentor Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Turk. Join me as we dive into the personal stories of some of the world's best hospitality professionals. We follow the journey of their ups, downs, and wild turns to find out what it truly takes to make it in the amazing world of hospitality. This episode is brought to you by our podcast partners at Real-Time Reservation. Their inventory management system is best in class for hotels and resorts to manage their non-room inventory. The web-based application allows for creative upselling of overnight and daytime visitors with add-ons and pre-planned packages. Hotel guests and non-guests can reserve cabanas, pool chairs, activities, amenities, excursions, events, day passes, and much more. The real-time reservation platform offers a fully integrated pre-arrival portal where guests are verified through the property management system. Guests can prepay for cabanas and activities through credit card integrations, which are then processed through point of sale. All of our listeners that might be interested in using real-time reservation are welcome to explore the demo at realtimereservation.com. Once again, that's realtimereservation.com. Welcome to another episode of the Hospitality Mentor Podcast. And today, listeners, we're going to take you on a new journey. We've pulled out the top stories and advice from some of the top chefs that have been on the podcast. So get your notebooks ready. You're going to want to take some notes from these great leaders. We've got Chef David Burke, Chef Jorge Ramos, Chef Sean Bernal, Chef Frederick Adelaire, and Chef Gordon Mayberry giving you the advice they wish they would have had and sharing some of the stories about their journey. So sit back and relax. I hope you enjoy. Today, I'm very excited to have Chef David Burke, award-winning chef, restaurateur, culinary pioneer, and inventor. You decided to go to culinary school. How was that step? Was that straight out of high school that you went there? Or did you go to college well, first? I, like I said, I, got a, I had a full year of working with Jose and others as my senior year, I didn't go to school. I, I did. I got my diploma, but I had like a work study program, which was kind of illegal. But they they let it happen because I was I had a varsity letter as a wrestler, so I had my phys ed. I had all my other credits, so they kind of, you know, you're supposed to go four years of phys ed, four years of something else. I forget. So they kind of like because I applied for the Culinary Institute of America as a junior, they let me not go senior. So that was super helpful for my career because. By the time I got to the culinary school, I already worked at a really good place, a couple of really good places. So I wasn't just out of high school at work and some like some of my classmates that worked at TGI Fridays or Ground Round or something like that. So I, I actually knew food and I knew how to butcher and I knew how to work the line and I knew how to puke in a bucket. <laughs> And so was it easy for you when you got there? Or did you learn things that you really well, didn't know? Well, CIA was not easy back then. Mm -hmm. uh, there were some classes I would, that were easier for me. Most of the cooking classes were easier. Uh, but, you know, sanitation, nutrition, wine classes, those things didn't interest me that much. Uh, but I still did good. I did good as that. I, I was the most likely to succeed candidate when I graduated. And as I... Uh, you know, I, I took school seriously. You know, I, I was into it. I was, I was always, I still into it. I love this career. I like the opportunity that it affords and there's every day it has a new opportunity. It doesn't, you don't really get to be finished. You know, you know, even if you're the CEO of your own company or you own your restaurant, 
you, you, you still have things to learn. You turn a corner and there's something new. You know, you're designing something, you're working on a new dish, you're fixing something, you're mentoring, you're teaching, you're buying a bakery. Now you're in the bakery business, you know, things like that. So there's always another branch of something happened or like I'm working on, I want to learn how to make, I want to do sushi myself now. So tired of ordering. I want to go work behind a sushi counter and learn. I hate not knowing how to do things at least uh -huh. a little bit. So I can get back there and just make If worse comes to worse, somebody guy doesn't show up, I can at least do something. Yeah, uh, with your creativity, I would love to try some of that sushi. You got you to gotta let us know when make, you're ready. You got to make the time, you know, and that's time is really the most precious commodity. That's what it is. So we'll going back to time and getting out of culinary school, you start traveling with your time. How does that happen? Do you have to find them and find these, you know, iconic chefs you work with around Europe or do they know you're in the culinary school and they find you well, or? How does that work I'm back not, then? I got, I had a, a chef in school. I thought hated me so hard on me. And then he recommended me the last couple of weeks of school. I had a job fair. He recommended that I work in a, in a, for a very wealthy family in Norway, which got me a ticket to Europe. So I was, I was hired by this family that usually hired a French chef from Cordon Bleu. They decided to go American. They had rest, they, got, they had businesses in Greenwich, Connecticut. Anyway, I went to Oslo. Worked. So were you like, you were like 21? Uh, 20. Yeah. 20. So 20 year old yeah. heading to Norway. <laughs> okay. Well, I went to, I told my dad I was moving to Norway and he was like, what exit is that? <laughs> yeah. I said that, but I went, so I got to Norway. I worked there for the summer and then I went on, a, uh, I took a month off and went all through Europe on a train. So, which was great. So I went to Italy, went to Germany, went to France, Holland, Belgium, and then back up to Scandinavia to get my airline ticket back. But the, the, the beauty of it is I wasn't afraid to move back there and work in one of the other countries in a restaurant because I realized that the language barrier wasn't that great. You know, I mean, I could do it. I could get in the kitchen and learn how to work without speaking French. Mm -hmm. I went to school in France without speaking French to learn pastry because you basically we, we visualize and you translate and you, you know, you, it's a look, see kind of, you, know, you can translate a recipe once you have it, but it's really the technique you're there to learn. It was hard because of, you know, you get picked on a bit too. If you're, I was a good cook when I went to pastry school, but I wasn't a pastry person and I was working in great restaurants and, uh, you know, when you don't have a language barrier, you might not understand what they say to do. I was like, oh, do this. And you think it's that you was deal it like, Hey, well, Hey, the American boys here. You know, yeah, let's put them to do all the hard work. They give you the tasks they don't want to do too. So you just do it. And then you, you know, you make sure you're doing well and you continue to work and then you, you, you thank them for the opportunity because basically you're working for free and it's another part of schooling. You know, yep. you're in the best, if you go in the best restaurants in the world, then you can even get in there for three, four, five weeks to learn and not have to pay them. That's great. But a lot of people wouldn't do that. You know, you gotta live in a youth hostel, you gotta save money. You know, you're eating ham and cheese sandwiches every day. You're eating at the restaurant, of course. But, you know, it takes a lot of guts to go out and do that when you look back at it, to just uproot yourself and move to a country, whether you're male or female, more so with a female, I think. When you when you just go and live in a, a small a small room in a, in a small hotel for three months, you know, in, in a foreign country, and just to learn. I and mean, there's a dedication there. There's a, there's a desire to be great. 
you work with a bunch of different chefs when you're there. I'm not going to ask like who your favorite, but you're all different styles that you were learning. Was there one that really stuck out to like, wow, this is one that, you know, I, well, I tell you that when I worked with George Blanc, it was very organized and, uh, meticulous and he's a very soft-spoken, wonderful guy. His kitchen is run, family kind of run, very smooth. And, uh, and then I worked with Gros, the two brothers, in a super modern kitchen, more Nouvelle Cuisine-ish, just more, uh, but regimented. And the guys there, they worked, you know, you worked split shifts and they played soccer in the afternoon. They weren't the friendliest batch, uh, very competitive. And even within that kitchen, they were competitive. But, but the food was avant-garde. And then I worked with Mark Minot, who was the meanest, mean guy that <laughs> liked me. And, but you wouldn't know, they, you know, sometimes the mean guys, you don't realize that they, they, they're mean because they like you. They, they, they're spending time with you. If they didn't like you, they wouldn't even give you the time of day. But his creativity was beyond. He was more, I would have to say he was more original. And he had, his, some of his ideas were just brilliant. Him and George Blanc. And I became friendly and we would visit George and I worked on how, uh, on Singapore airlines together. And Mark Minot came to the U S for a couple of weeks, years ago. And came, you know, we went out to dinner together, came to the restaurant, had him in my convertible. We had a, we had a couple of nights that were, that were hair, hair uh, curling. And, uh, and it was a joy to have been able to, to reciprocate what he taught me, even though when I was a young kid, they would myself included it. They would never think I would become a well-known chef. But it started with their help. Learning is if you keep learning, I mean, like, you know, you keep learning. I work for this guy, Pierre Hermé, a great pastry chef at Fauchon. He doesn't, I don't know if he realizes I was in that kitchen because we see tons of uh, uh, students coming through. But I'll remember because I was in awe of these people. You know, they might see 100 students like I train 100 cooks. Right. Cooks remember you. And if you do ever hit it big or you want to drop a note, it's always appreciated, right? I mean, I get calls in the middle of the night sometimes. Some guy got three stars. He calls me up drunk from St. Louis or <laughs> Idaho or San Francisco. And like, hey, chef, I got three. You know, I opened my own restaurant. I got three stars. You fired me, but I love you. Pop up. Enjoy it. So you're, you're traveling Europe. You're, you're called back home or you decide to come back home. And I went back home and I worked for Wally Maloof, uh, who was at Le Cobas. We worked at a very good French restaurant up in the, outside of New York. I worked two years with him. And I, every, everybody that worked there, the waiters and the rest of the cooks, except for me and him, were Belgium and French. So the, the language that was spoke there in the kitchen was French, except for me and him. And it was a really famous country French restaurant owned by the guys who owned La Caravelle in New York. And, uh, I honed my skills there and I learned the classic cuisine of French food, like Le Col Basque did at the time. Then I left and worked to New York City to work for Daniel Malud at the Hotel Plaza Athene when it opened in 84, late 84, or summer of 84. Spent several months working with him, got through the holidays, and then the, the chef, while well, Charlie Palmer called me to be the sous chef at the River Cafe because I had met Charlie working. Mm-hmm. The French restaurant in the country. He was a, he was working at a country club, so the River Cafe sous chef job took precedent over the fish cook job with Danielle, and I jumped ship. And that was two years with Charlie. Within those two years of a sous chef, I went to France and worked for those great people. And then uh, 
I was going to open Oriole with Charlie, Charlie, but they offered me the job at the River Cafe to stay, which I took the job only if I could stop for six months and learn pastry, which is how I got over to pastry school in Paris, paid for by the owner of the River Cafe. When I came back in 87, 88, I was fresh out of pastry school, took over the River Cafe for Charlie Palmer. He went to open Oriole, and I spent another five years as the chef of the River Cafe until 92. And I represented the United States and the Olympics in Tokyo in 88. We won the Olympics. I also got several good reviews, created it my own style, more importantly than anything else. In 92, went to open the Park Avenue Cafe with the founder of TJ Fridays, the Smith and Walensky, Alan Stillman. Spent 10 years with Alan. We opened a slew of restaurants together, steakhouses and fine dining. I went public, made some money. Then I opened a David Burton Donatella on the Upper East Side with a girl, a woman named Donatella Paya. Hit a grand slam. So that was your first, right? So I want to unpack something. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to come back to when you first become exec chef at the River Cafe. That was your first executive chef role, right? Yeah. That's a pretty big one to me. Right. And so I'm curious because you're a young gun, right? 24, 25, 26 when you win the three stars from New York Times. But what was that like to become a leader of men and women in that kitchen when you're a young guy and you've never you know really been the head of the I was the sous chef there, it made it a little easier. Mm-hmm. But I had left and Charlie was leaving and he was taking his crew. And Larry Ford Jones was before Charlie. So there were th- I had fear. Fear and like fear is a good motivator for me. I don't like to fail. So mm-hmm. when I have fear, man, I get I get really anxious and I get and I get moving. <laughs> you know, yeah. I figure it out. I don't like to be boxed into a corner. So I'm a fighter. And I, uh, I figured it out. So I got the pastry down pat. I knew how to run a kid. I didn't know how to order all the food correctly. I didn't know all of that stuff, but that was taken care of. I let the stuff I didn't know bother me. And then I, and the owner was like, the stuff you do know is why we're giving you the job. We're not giving you the job because of the stuff you don't know. We want, we think what you do know is head and shoulders above anybody else. And he goes, the reason you're getting the job is because the rest of the staff told me you deserve the job and you can do this. So oh, that's awesome. We did it. And I was shocked because I used to yell and scream at way everybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's because that was old school chef. Yeah. Right. But, but we, you know, but the results were backed up. And yeah. uh, so were yeah. you doing stuff that the owner did not like, or was he like, Hey man, you have full control in this kitchen. We, you know, Buzzy O'Keefe gave us full control. He did edit somewhat. He never told us you had to do this or that, but he, he was way ahead of his time. He was all about getting the best peach when the best peach was available. He, kept, he would always say, you know, you don't need to put sauce on a good steak. And he was right. But trying to tell a young culinary guy back then, you can't put steak sauce on a steak or you can't serve foie gras. You can't. Even, I remember throwing a shit fit because I couldn't make my own ice cream. Think about it now. I don't want to make my own ice cream. Yeah. I, I, but back then, you know, we had to do, in order to get three stars, you had to be with the elite. You had to work that way. You had to want to do things. I mean, we had a pastry menu with 24 desserts, 24 desserts. We had the best pastry program in the city. And I was a kid. And I, but you know what? I was tireless and I would drive people. I could get 150% out of anybody be just by, by motivating them. And that, that's, that's a, there's a skill there, encouraging them and telling them that they can do this. Like I would challenge people and say, listen, you got to make 100 chocolate butterflies. I said, you can do this. And they're like, well, I, I never did it. I said, well, I said, the guy, the first guy that made chocolate butterflies never did it either. I mean, I said, you got to start. 
and the pride that they would take when they put that final chocolate butterfly on top of the dessert was like, and then you got them. That you know, a student when you teach people, it's better than paying them almost. Got to pay people, but when you teach somebody a little something every day and they're getting better, they take that home with them and knowledge is power, and they they feel it. They feel and it. You, and like you said you started developing your style there, like really commend yeah. to your own. Was there something that stands out in your mind? Like, man, I got something here. Like this. Well, is, you know what it was. We were doing, we, we had the best view in the world of, for a restaurant, right? So what I started doing was presenting food architecturally and getting, so we were doing Instagram food before Instagram. We, yeah. would, we, would, we, would, we were saying, look at me, man. Look at me on a plate. Don't look in your lover's eyes. Look at this food. This is, this is a new guy in the kitchen. This is what we do. And, then, you know, and I, you got to look at it. For me to take my creme brulee recipe, and it's the same one that Charlie Palmer has and the same one that Larry, how is mine going to stand that? I have to prove to people that I'm better or that I'm worthy. So what do I need to do? I need to outstyle, outthink, get up earlier, stay out later, whatever it may be. And I got to drive. I have to prove that I am worthy. I don't have to just, I don't want to just take the job because I got the job. I want to leapfrog above this job. I want this job. To, I don't want the guy coming after me to ever be as good. I'm swinging for the fences. I'm excited to have my friend, Chef Jorge Ramos, the culinary director for the Americas of Hilton Hotels. You've worked in luxury hotels, but that's like at another level of luxury. Yeah. Was there a big difference for you in seeing that? Yeah, there was. You know, here, when you're talking about... Um, orientation or right the, the 10 days of countdown, right? When the hotel's about to open, all the trainings were about luxury. So it was Forbes training. It was a sequence of service. It was all the steps from the moment a guest pulled up to the porte cochere to the point that you're handing them their bill to end dinner, right? So you, you learned and you looked at every single aspect of that. And it was all the details, you know, how we're putting the, the condiments in a caddy, how we're presenting things that are unique to us because we're in, we're in a specific country. So we want to tie in the local culture, all the little details we looked at from A to Z. But I think that was the biggest difference, right? Where I think working at Lowe's, working at, at the W and working at uh, Lowe's Atlanta up in that point, these were big hotels. Yeah. You looked at the details, but not to that, that process, mm -hmm. right? Like every single step of the way was looked at, you know, um, that, it taught me a lot. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people realize the difference between a four-star and a five-star and how much detail. Like, I learned that while going to Mandarin. Like, that was Mandarin Oriental five-star and U.S. St. Regis. You know, mm -hmm. we got our five-star training, and then our cross paths again, right? So we yeah. our, our paths cross. But I want to know, yeah. you know, I know, but I want our listeners to know, how did we end up together at the Viceroy of Miami? How did you decide to leave Puerto Rico where you wanted to be for so long? Why come back into Miami? Yeah. So I, I was, um, you know, at the time I was in a long distance relationship with my now wife. Right. And we were at a point in, in our lives that we're like, listen, what are we doing? You know, are we taking this to another step? Are we making it more serious? And it's hard to do that. You know, when you're so far away from each other. Right. So in my head, I was like, you know what? I got to get back stateside and, and, and kind of, you know, settle down a few go. I've been kind of here and there, it's time to settle down and, and get home, right? Miami always holds a special place in, in my heart, right? And, and even today with my job now, flying so much, every time I fly back home, I get such excitement going through when I see the, the skyline over the plane and things like that. So 
um, it was time to come home. And I think at that point, you know, I think you posted something or we were in contact. You were looking for somebody to bring onto the team at the Vice in Miami. I reached out to you and, and you told me, hey, fly over. Let's do, let's do it. You know, I interviewed, I did my tasting and I got the job and we started working together once more. Now, I look back on that place fondly. You know, it was, a, yeah. it was, I think, a place we were two young guys at the time. So it's 10 years ago. We were, I was yeah. just turning 29 or 30. Yeah. Um, so maybe not that young, but it felt young. But what do you remember from those days as working at the Viceroy? Because in my head, that was really the first time, not on paper, but you were really executive chef, even though yeah. there was no yeah. executive chef at that hotel. Yeah. So I, I think that opportunity really, really allowed me to put into play all the things that I had learned, all the scenarios that I'd gone through. You know, yeah, we had an executive chef, but, you know, um, he, he was a bit disconnected from, from the operation. And, you know, you and I were, were making a lot of the big decisions, you know, so I thought that having that happen, working with the different departments, the bank with the restaurants, starting up the EOS cafe, I remember, which was nothing to what we turned it into. It really showed us how to use our skill set that we learned through the years, you know, and, and though, if you were to ask me, has that been one of the best opportunities in my career? It probably hasn't. But when I look at what I took out of there what I was able to, to do out of there, it allowed me to learn for free, make mistakes for free, right? Because you pretty certain we made quite a bit of them, right? Yeah. In repositioning the restaurants when you were launching brunch and all that, we had no, no guidance really, if you will. There wasn't anybody above us. No, you and I guiding us. It was you and I trying to figure it out, you know? And I think that, that, um, allowed us to be more resourceful and, and really a bit more on, on the entrepreneur side of our, of our uh, skill set kind of developed a little bit through there. Yeah. And, and for the listeners out there, this was like coming out of 2008, it was like about 2010, you know, economy is not great. So there's not much money in this hotel that may or may not go bankrupt. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's now the W Brickle. So you can see Viceroy didn't make it, but the chef and I had to figure out how to get tools and stuff without money. And we and had to barter with vendors. I learned how to barter yeah. with vendors there. Yeah. And I'm sure you learned a lot. Like what, yeah. what was something that you learned that made you maybe a better chef today from that hotel? So I, I think um, one thing that, that I, I was able to do there was bring two young chefs from Puerto Rico. Oh, yeah. Miami. So I was able to recruit my own team or build my own team with two people that at the time I had just finished working with in Puerto Rico. And I thought these were young kids that had such potential, right? I could have easily said, nah, who cares? I'll move on. I'll find people here. But they made such an impact in my work while I was in Puerto Rico. I felt these kids have the future ahead of them. And I thought back as to how Chef Mark and, and Ted Peters and Miguel and all the great chefs that I worked with at the Lowe's in my early years gave me an opportunity and took a chance on me. So I was able to work out to be able to hire them and bring them in from Puerto Rico. And that on its own, building a team, teaching them, right? Because also a culture shock, right? Being able to be that, that kind of cross of like, hey, I know Miami, this is the business. You're coming from Puerto Rico. This is what you don't know. This is how you got to look at things, right? So those are some of those special things. Um, hey, give, them, give them a shout out because they're both great chefs now. Yeah. So uh, Nelson Lopez, he's now the executive chef at the Conrad Fort Lauderdale, which is the property that I was at before. And then Jorge Negron. Uh, I don't know exactly the place where Jorge Negron is, but Jorge Negron, uh, I mean, he worked with me at the one hotel. 
Then after that, he was leading the Jeffrey Zakarin Russian that was at the Diplomat. Mm-hmm. Uh, then he was the executive chef at the Traymore Mary Beach working with Michael Schwartz. So both of them have lots to be, to be proud of. You know, these are kids that came here, not really knowing the language, not really knowing our local Miami culture and, and really excelled. And both of them are working at very high levels to today. Yeah, I, I remember that clearly. You just jogged my memory. Those guys came in and it was like bringing in the ringers, right? Yeah. Like off the bench, like we had no talent and they came in and was like all of a sudden elevated everything. And so I look back at some pictures of what we were doing back then, especially during like Easter and brunch, yeah. and like the crazy mm-hmm. plates we were putting out and no one to tell yeah. us yes or no. And so that was yeah, probably one of the more fun things. But again, like you said, we weren't being taught. We were learning ourselves yeah. and teaching each other. So yeah, love that. But then we both leave the same month. Mm-hmm. So yeah, sorry to, to Laurence. Yeah. It was the general manager. We loved you, but it was time for us to go. Uh, but where did you go after we started? So one of the things that I missed while I was at Vistor, I missed that, that, and even through the years, right? Because when, when I did all this jumping around through the W and Lowe's Atlanta and things like that, there was something missing. You know, deep down, I was missing that structure that I got from Lowe's Miami. I think Lowe's Miami and you see it today. It's one of the better ran hotels, even after so many years, right? It's an institution. Mm-hmm. And I missed that. So I, I was looking for that. And um, I had seen an opportunity to join Rich Carlton South Beach. I applied. I interviewed. I had to do a tasting where the chef wanted me to lay out. As soon as we finished the interview, he wanted the menu then and there. That's how he did it. He didn't want to give me a bunch of days to figure it out. He's like, no, write your menu, write your market list. Tell me what you need. So, okay, cool. I did that. And then I came back a couple of days later. I did my tasting. I got the job and I was there at Ritz Carlton for a little over two years. And I really, what, what I was looking for, I got there. I got that, that structure. I got that sense of uh, family, if you will. Right. Because a lot of the people that I worked with there were some people that I worked with at Lowe's. So it, it just, it, it hit all the points that I, at that point in my career I was looking for. And then it also continued to teach me things about the business that I was not very strong at to some extent. You know, the executive chef um, at Ritz Carlton South Beach at that time was a Mo Arverwall, someone that I still keep in touch with now. He was very financially savvy. He knew his P&Ls in and out. He knew his operation. Uh, he taught me that. He taught me about the importance of controlling your checkbook. You're looking at your checkbook weekly looking through your POs, making sure the inventories are right, looking at what all the chefs were ordering individually, because ultimately that was going to affect the food cost. So he taught me a lot about the business day to day. A lot of people don't know about that. They think it's just your cooking and putting out plates. The hardest part about being a high-level chef. Yeah, it's running that business. Yeah, labor. Mm-hmm. Um, so he taught me all of those things. And, you know, he told me, hey, when, when I go on vacation, you need to go to the meetings that I go to. You need to go sit down and labor review. You need to go sit down in the EC meeting and talk with the rest of the exec committee about the issues that are happening in the hotel, things that we're working on to ensure guest satisfaction, you know, and, and you got to continue the business. So he was one of the first chefs that kind of believed in me without knowing if I can do it or not. He just mm-hmm. believed in me hundred percent just because he felt you have to do it. You're the executive sous chef. And then you so, grow, you continue to grow there. And I remember yeah. then you first got your real yeah. official executive chef job. Yeah. And it wasn't the Carlton Bell Harbor, but a Ritz Carlton Bell Harbor. And what was that like? Because it kind of went back to like a Viceroy size hotel, a little smaller almost, right? Really, really small. So at at that time, um, the same ownership from Ritz Carlton South Beach purchased that hotel. Mm -hmm. Um, 
that hotel was many different things before. And, and I think the location really made sense for it to become a luxury hotel like the Ritz-Carlton. And um, at that time, the director of food and beverage, um, Winfred Van Workum, who today is the, I think, the area GM for St. Regis NW uh, South Beach. Nice. He was the director of food and beverage, and then he got promoted to hotel manager there. And he kind of wanted uh, a chef that he kind of had already worked with. It was the same ownership. So to some degree, some of the exec roles were complex roles. Mm -hmm. So it, it just felt like the right opportunity. It allowed me to grow one step more. I was still attached to, you know, the mother property, if you will, which was Ritz-Carlton South Beach. So I knew I still had the support from my old team. So really there was like um, repositioning that hotel because what it was to what it needed to be was very different, you know, and, and there I got my first true taste of interacting with a corporate team, with corporate Marriott team, like the area vice presidents, the senior vice presidents of food and beverage, the corporate chef, dealing with them in the sense, okay, this is what we're doing, talking about strategy, repositioning. So I think that taught me a lot about that relationship, right? Managing down which with your line level staff, your mid managers, but then also managing up, mm -hmm. right? You got to be able to have a relationship with your, your corporate support team as well. So that opportunity or in that hotel, I really learned a lot about that. Today, I'm excited to have my friend, Chef Sean Bernal, the executive chef of the soon to be open Mayfair House Hotel in Coconut Grove. I had just bought a house. I just had a baby. Mm -hmm. You know, and then, you know, that happened. And I was like, oh, my God, what do I do now? That transitioned me into the Ocean Reef Club, which is kind of where I went underground for a little while. As you know, you know, I went there and I was there for about six years. And at the Ocean Reef Club, being a private club in Key Largo, you know. Yeah, but not, not any private club. So let's talk this up to listener. It's like the 0.01% of the world country yes. club. Every billionaire has a house there. It has its yeah. own hospital has its own airport it's uh -huh. the va the valet is all private jets yep. so don't, don't undersell where you were <laughs> where you were working well uh the way that that happened uh, you know of course you know the delano ended so i was kind of in between jobs and i went and i and uh steve paracone mm -hmm. the owner of paracone's restaurant he called me he's like hey you know i need some help down here you know i my chef just left and you know, could you help me get this place organized? And I was like, yeah, of course. You know what I mean? It's, I wasn't doing anything. So I was able to go there and start working. And, you know, funny thing, I, I get an email, random email from the F&B director at the time, this guy called Giovanni Mellis from the Ocean Reef Club. So uh, backtrack a little bit to the Ocean Air Seafood Room. Uh, I got invited to go and cook a private, a couple private dinners at the Ocean Reef Club while I was employed by the Ocean Air Seafood Room and also to teach some classes. Right. Because, you know, so then he says, hey, listen, you know, I don't know what you're doing. He's like, but, you know, and forgive me for being so bold, but, you know, I want you here to be my chef at my seafood restaurant. And, you know, are you interested? So, you know, of course, I call him back and and then six years go by. <laughs> you know, I took the job down there and I took over the restaurant called The Islander, right? Mm -hmm. So The Islander was like their main restaurant. Um, it was a restaurant where everybody could go. Because, you know, you had some restaurants that were members only, you know, and, and the cool thing about Ocean Reef Club is that there was a lot of different things going on. I mean, we had a place called the Ocean Room, a place called the Galley, you know, uh, uh, Giovanni's, another restaurant. I mean, just had like at least six, seven, eight restaurants over there. 
And, you know, I had the one that, you know, was the highest grossing one. We were located in Buccaneer Island, mm-hmm. which was kind of like the, the pool area for them and the beach. So, you know, I also took care of a restaurant called the Palm Court, which was like their outdoor kind of a dining restaurant for lunch and the beach grill, which is the, the kitchen that served the pool area and the beach area. And a little thing about that kitchen, that kitchen was absolutely tiny, but we would pump out about 1,500 to 1,800 covers a day out of that place, especially in high season. Wow. It was and, and, absolutely and for, insane. And for listeners, covers is an order, right? So just that you're pumping out 1,800 orders uh, of food out there is crazy. Yeah. So that's yeah, perverse. That's insane. nuts. So, that's wild. So, so you're there for so, a couple of years, right? You're, you're doing your thing. Years. Yeah, yeah. you're there a long time, actually. And yeah, then, six years, yeah. What happens? Why? Well, what, why six, the the move? Why the change? Why the change? All right. So six years in, you know, there's uh, I'm I'm the chef de cuisine there, and there's a group of chef de cuisines for every restaurant. And you know me, I'm I'm a pretty ambitious guy, you know, and, yes. I, and I and I was always thinking like, man, what's next? You know, like there's a lot more that I could give. You know, I want to be able to to do more in this career. Today, I am. Very excited to have one of my good friends, executive chef Frederick Delaire, on the podcast today. Frederick, thank you so much for joining. Uh, you're very welcome, Steve. And I was going to introduce him as celebrity chef, and we'll get oh, into please. that later. <laughs> uh, why? But uh, we have a true celebrity here on the podcast. Uh, but Frederick, we always start the show with the question of what was your first job in hospitality? So my first job, I have to say that sometime in life, you have to be a bit lucky. And it's what happened to me. Um, when I when I was 16 years old, um, you know, the school system found out that it would be a waste for me to continue. So and I didn't want to go to school uh, anymore because, uh, you know, it was not something that I liked and enjoyed. I always wanted to do something like in culinary. Uh, my grandfather was a bread baker. Uh, so I always wanted to join the culinary field, you know, be a chef or maybe a pastry chef, a bread baker. And in France, so I was born and raised in France. And in France, something it's super cool. It's called um, the apprenticeship. So basically what you do, you find a restaurant, you become an apprentice. And what you do, you work for five weeks uh, with the, the restaurant and then you go one week in a culinary school then you go back so it's like a culinary school but very intense because you work with the school uh, you work sorry you work with the with a restaurant and at the time my grandmother had some connection and i ended up to be um, an apprentice for a two michelin star restaurant um, near where i was living and when i entered there he was the, the owner was chef of the year uh, in France, which is it's big. So it's where I started as an apprentice. Wow, it's a great I, place to start. Yes, I was. What was it called? It's called Restaurant L'Aubergade. It's in a tiny village in the middle of nowhere, medieval town, med- medieval village. At the time, it was a two Michelin star restaurant. You know, I was supposed to do two years there, and I ended up doing four. That's amazing. So as an apprentice the whole time, do you get paid as an apprentice in France, or yes, is it... which is okay. good which mm-hmm. is good. So you get paid. I used to get paid. I mean, I think it was, uh, it was not much, but uh, 
you get uh, subvention from the government as an apprentice, which pay for your lodging, they pay for the school and everything. So it was good. It was good. Uh, but it was tough. I mean, you know, when you go to school, you have to go. So I did, uh, it was in the summer. So I, go, I did the entire summer. And in September, I need to go to the, the culinary uh, school for five days. And I remember my first day, each of us have to say, what is your name? You know, where you work, where you are an apprentice and everybody started. So my name is Steve Turk. I work at restaurant, blah, blah, blah. I am, my name is blah, blah, blah. I work there. And me, I come from a middle-class family. So we used to go to the restaurant uh, in the late uh, 80s but not to Michelin star restaurant. So I had no idea what a famous restaurant was, but when I started, I said, my name is Frederick Dollar. I'm an apprentice at restaurant Lobergade. And the room went entirely silent and everybody turned and looked at me. And I became quickly, you know, even if I was an apprentice and I was, most of my time was cleaning dishes and cleaning the street and stuff like that. When we had practice at the school, people used to come to me and ask me, does this taste good? What, what will you do? What do you think about the presentation? And I'm like, you know, most of them as apprentices in France, you work hands-on, mm -hmm. but it, because it was such a high-end restaurant, uh, apprentice, you know, they, what they did is, you know, clean the kitchen, wash dishes and, and stuff like that. So it's when I noticed, I was like, oh, wow. I'm in a special place. I love it. So now knowing the story, you were always the celebrity chef. Even as washing dishes at the beginning. <laughs> yes. So you're an apprentice there for four years. Then, if you remember correctly, you join the army. You have to join the army, right? Yes, you have to join the army. And then it's where I realized once again how important that restaurant was. Because first, you go for like three weeks of out training, fighting, and stuff like that. And then I went to my base. And my base, my, my base was located where I live, uh, near where I live in France. Um, so when I went to the base and they saw where I work, I went straight to the kitchen and I was assigned to cook for the people with the, the rank. So mm -hmm. I did private dinner and stuff like that. So it was super cool. And were you bringing stuff from the restaurant? Did you know what you were doing? Because you were really just an apprentice learning. So I was an apprentice for the first two years. Right. Uh, hardcore washing dishes and stuff like that. But then the restaurant didn't want to let me go. So they contacted my parents at the time I was 18 years old and they say, you need to stay, you need to stay. But I made a deal. I told the chef that if I was going to do dishes and stuff for another two years, I will uh, basically uh, make sure I get kidnapped by people. <laughs> <laughs> so he put me in pastry and I became an apprentice pastry cook. And time to time I used to go in the kitchen, but because of the part-time school training and what I see, uh, I learned a lot. So, yes, when I went to the, to the base in the army, uh, I did some super cool dinner. I'd love to hear that. And so then you leave there and you go to another Michelin star restaurant, right? What was the name of that one? Yes, so it was restaurant Wintmühl and it was in Germany. So it was first time for me leaving my, you know, leaving the country, going to another country, was in Germany, a very talented German chef. Uh, I stayed there, I don't remember how long, maybe four years, uh, but it was super cool, super rough, super difficult. Um, art school, uh, small restaurant, but really nice. 
So what was the biggest difference, right? Because I didn't know this part. I thought you were still in France. So you're in Germany. What is the difference going? You grew up in France. Why did you end up in Germany? So because I stayed four years um, near to where my parents live and this, you know, um, and I noticed that my resume, proving that I was an apprentice for four years in that restaurant, was very important. I wanted to live. I wanted to explore a little bit the world, you know, to do something different. So one day we used to have a great newspaper. Now everything is online, it's easy, but we had a newspaper called L'Hotellerie. And it's about hotel and restaurant looking for, for any type of work, chef, sous chef, apprentice, this and that. So I typed my resume and then I sent resume all over Europe. I sent the resume, first of all, in the United Kingdom. So I sent to Scotland, Ireland, Wales, England. You know, I had a connection at the Dorchester, I think it's called, in England. Mm -hmm. I sent my resume in Switzerland, uh, to the United States, in Belgium. I sent it to Germany, Spain, Italy. And I got Everywhere. a lot of answer. And uh, I got a lot of answer. Uh, I get a job offer in, in Scotland, in Switzerland, in Belgium. But the one in Germany really interested me. It was really cool. I talked to the chef. And at the time, you know, it was not like now. You have to send your resume by letter or by fax. <laughs> so when you send the fax, you have, you have to go back to your house and wait for the phone call. But I remember people calling and I decided to go to Germany. To try. What was it about him? What was it about that chef that you said, this is the spot that I want to go? He was born uh and raised in germany but most of his training was in michelin star restaurant in france and he speaks uh fluent french and german so you know i felt that it would be cool for me to go there and uh, the way he approached me with what he wanted to do the type of food and this why he wanted to have me you know he kind of proposed me a higher job because i was an apprentice leaving the, the, the Michelin star restaurant. So I didn't want to end up in a lower position. Like, you know, in France, we have different position, like a commie, this. So it was kind of like slash commie chef de partie uh, at the time in Germany. So I say, why not? So what was it like when you got there the first day? Do you remember the first shift? Was it like, oh, they look at this French boy or they welcome you in? What well, was it that was like? A restaurant. It was only three of us, uh, the chef and three, 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 chef, three cooks. Uh, one was German and the two other, I mean, the two of us were French, the two other. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's, it's a cultural shock. You know, now these days you go to, you have, you go to YouTube, you go to your phone, Wikipedia, you can read a lot of things about Germany. But me, it was like, I went to a train, <laughs> the train uh, all the way to Paris and after go in the middle of Germany to, I don't know, it was a train ride at night and then you arrive over there and everybody speak German. Luckily, I spoke a little bit of English. So, but yes, it, it's, it's a culture shock. It's, um, wow, it, it's, you know, first time I was away from my family for, you know, that far. And I was young. I mean, I was still uh, 20, 20 years old, 21. Oh, yeah, you're young. You're a young kid. Yes. And so you end up in Germany in this this restaurant for three years, right? So you're there, you're learning, and you grew the whole time yes, there? Yes, three to four years, I, yes. What kind of food uh, were you making there? Mostly, like, fine dining. Fine dining food, you know, um, with a little bit of French and German twist. But it's when I realized that in Germany, they had a lot of great chefs, as well it was amazing so you know it was uh, it was upscale i think we got a michelin star later 
That's awesome. But then you decide to come back home to France. Yes, I decided to come back home to France because um, I wanted to maybe go again to another country, you know, maybe to England, maybe try my chance to go to the United States, to, to maybe in Spain. And then I go back to France and I get a call from a friend who tell me that they're looking for employee uh, in Paris. And Paris was always one city that I wanted to go because it's a city that fit my lifestyle, which means, you know, on Saturdays and Sunday, everything is open late at night. It's always something to do. You know, where I was in Germany was a small town and where I, uh, I was in apprenticeship in France was a small town. So I wanted to do like something. I, I visited Paris, I remember, and I really fell in love with it. So I decided to go to, to explore the position. And when I found out it was a, uh, um, a chef de party job in the second floor of the Eiffel Tower called the restaurant Jules Verne. It was a Michelin star at the time. So that was like... Yeah, I love it that you were at two tiny towns before. Yes. Right? Kind of smaller restaurants. Yes. And then you go to the most one of the most famous cities in the world, uh, yes. one of the most <laughs> famous, iconic things in the entire planet, the Eiffel Tower. And now you're in that restaurant. Right. And now what you're 23 years old, 24 years old, hanging out in this restaurant at the Eiffel Tower. How did you feel when you walked in there? First of all, the system was different because everywhere I worked was as an apprentice. I worked in a very big kitchen. It was a big kitchen, a big brigade, as we call it. In Germany, it was smaller. But here the system was different. It was it was owned by a group called Aliens at the time. Uh, they sold it. I mean, they, the, the rent, they, they part away with the rent and everything several years ago. We know Alain Ducasse took over. Now it's another chef. But it was a big company called Aliens, and they had all the food and beverage in the Eiffel Tower, including first floor, the, the people who make the crepping <laughs> while you wait for to go visit to go the up. Eiffel Tower. The restaurant Jules Verne, they have a lot of food restaurants in a train station in France. They have several famous restaurants in Paris. And it was the first time I ever worked in a kind of a bit corporate type, Interesting. but still restaurant. Like I remember one time they, you know, I had to, so again, to, to, to explain, usually we used to work longer shift in every place I ever worked. So you, you work like 12, 14 hours a day. Here in the Eiffel Tower, you work four day, very long shift and three days off. And the following week, you have four days off, three day work, which was Amazing because in Paris he left you with a lot of time to visit and do stuff. Yeah, that sounds remember, awesome. Yes, one time I had to work because the, so we had two teams, two culinary team, and the guy that was going to replace me for my four days off had an injury or something, so I had to pick up his shift. And at the end of the month, I got the paycheck and I went to see the chef. I said, "Look, something is wrong here. Uh, you overpay me." He said, "No, you work an extra four days, which." Yeah. <laughs> it was nice. You got your overtime. <laughs> yes, which uh, was the first time ever. So. Okay, so I don't understand. How did that schedule work? How come we can't do that here in the United States where you work four days and then three days? Why doesn't that work here? Um, well, well, it, it does work like that here for the employee because you work, um, you, you work on eight-hour shift. So the way you work, you have two teams, so you have way much more employee. And what happened um, while... 
when you get your four days off, you have an entire team. So we're talking about at the time 14, 15 people. So you have a brigade of 30 cooks. Yep. Um, here it could work in a smaller restaurant. In a big hotel, I don't think it would work because you will have to, have to double the team. That's true. You got to double up everybody, less hours. They won't like that. I got it. Okay, makes sense. So you're in the Eiffel Tower. You're working there. What's the experience like? It's got to be a way different clientele. Yes. Very yes, busy, it's... I'm sure. Well, you know, Michelin star wise, it was one Michelin star. And right. it was not the most prestigious place because the first place I worked, it was a two Michelin star. Um, but I noticed that it was one of the, mo it is actually the most iconic restaurant I ever worked with because I realized that people coming to it, you know, like we had, we used to have like a part of the restaurant that the view is on Trocadero, which one probably the best view of any restaurant in the world. It was reserved six to six months to 12 months before. And we're talking in the late nineties, you know, not, um, so it was like amazing. And everything was so different because, you know, the, the, the Eiffel Tower, everything, you cannot have a gas, everything was electric. Uh, so, and then it was the first job where you have to do background check and uh, you have to pass security, you have to have a badge. So it was like working like at the White House or something. It was like, <laughs> yes, it was. And one thing that, the only thing I didn't really like, it was when you have a day off, no matter where you are in Paris, you see the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> <laughs> so mentally, you never really rest. <laughs> That's but, actually uh, really good. Yes. Yes, it was amazing. And so what was it like working in that kitchen? So you had 15 people at a time in there. You had your own station. I mean, tell someone who doesn't, you know, they're coming up in the kitchen. What was life in that kitchen like? The, the life was, it was rough because the number of cover, you know, I never worked in a place where they used to do 100 cover for lunch, 100 cover for dinner. And for people listening, a cover is you're a person. Think of it that way. Okay. You're serving a person, yes. right? So 100 people that... Lunch and dinner. And over there, it's not, you know, in the US, you can say I did 100 covers in in the US. Most restaurants are open, um, you know, lunch and they, they, they drag all the way to dinner and then you do dinner. In France, it was like 11.45, the door open, 2 p.m., that's it. So you do that number of people, Michelin star, in a short span of time. So it was, it was rough. Every service was like a, a battle. And then you prep and then you do the service at night, at night and same thing, 100 cover. And it was, uh, it, it, was, it was difficult. On top of it, that kitchen was completely sealed. So we had only one tiny window to see what was going on. So it was like completely enclosed, like if we were in a submarine. And <laughs> tiny space, you know, tiny space. It's one restaurant on the second floor. So, yeah, so listeners behind him, which is hilarious to me, but amazing. He has a giant framed photo of the Eiffel Tower and he's pointing to his restaurant. <laughs> so, yes, so it, it, it's a tiny space and it's 15. So you have the chef, you have the, 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 the executive chef, you have the executive sous chef, and then you have an entire, entire team. And each team has a chef de partie and Komi that worked. So me, I was in the beginning when I started as, as a meat steak station, then I moved to the fish station. Uh, but yes, it was, it, 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 it's, you know, it's a tiny space and the food doesn't come, you know, hey, let's go on the loading dock. No, the food go to the elevator, 
the private elevator in one of the the foot of the Eiffel Tower, then you need to take an, ele take an elevator. And when you arrive on the second floor of the Eiffel Tower, the restaurant is more elevated. So you have to take another elevator that go to the kitchen. And the kitchen is so tiny, you have to do the chain. We used to scream in the morning, chain! And everybody <laughs> do like a, the chain and you have to pass the potato, the carrots, the, the fish and this. I, it, it was unique. You know, I say it a lot, but today I am actually very excited because I have my friend, the director of culinary for the JW Marriott Miami Turnberry Resort and Spa here in Aventura. We've got Chef Gordon Mabry. You've been all over the world. Your career has been at all these amazing hotels. You've worked with great people, including me. Uh, <laughs> and, but looking back, right, if you... We're going to talk to young Gordon at the dishwashing pit with the pirates in Dublin. What advice would you give him if he was starting today? What I, would you I think tell the him? same sort of almost that my parents said is that, you know, it, you want to do do whatever you want to do, but, but, you know, you've got to put effort in, you've got to put work in and you've got to work with the best people and in the best places to be the best. You know, the guys who are, are, you know, on the minor league teams, they're, they're not in the world series, you know, so work with the best people. Um, ask questions, certainly in, in the culinary world. I mean, I know it's hard to say and it's hard to do, but the first five, six years, you can't worry about the money. If you take jobs for the money, you know, and not taking the best job, you're, you're going to get stuck. At some point, the, the doors are going to close and you're not going to get the jobs that are, are the better jobs that are out there. You know, if I worked, if I took a job, at the best paying job at the time, if I had worked for some pub in Ireland, I wouldn't be at Turnberry today, that's for sure. I wouldn't have got the job at Peninsula, you know, and I wouldn't have got the job at Peninsula if I hadn't worked in Michelin star places in Ireland. And I wouldn't have got the job probably at Turnberry if I hadn't have done PGA with the resort and at the club experience, you know, so it's, so all of these experiences count, but every job you take, it opens up new doors, but it does close doors. If you and me went and worked at McDonald's today, I'm sure we'd learn a ton of stuff and would open up some doors, but it sure as hell would close a lot of doors too. Yep. That's great advice. And, you know, really. Yeah, seek, you know, ask people, people that you trust and people that you, you, that are your mentors, ask them for advice. And when they're telling you, I mean, a lot of times we tell cooks this, or we tell Sue's that, and they, they do the opposite stuff. And then they come back six months later and say, oh, do you have a job? And I'm like, yeah, sure. And we'll take people back. I mean, I'm not one that say, you know, I told you so, but it's like, we know what we're doing. So if we tell you something, it's not going to, it's not, doesn't make sense to do it. And it's $5,000 more. You know, but sometimes you have to you have to learn yourself. I'm I'm sure we didn't always take everyone's advice either. No, but I think what you hit and it was advice given to me: work with the best, keep with top brands, keep in that top tier because it really does yeah. open up all the doors. This podcast is brought to you by Biscayne Coffee. Biscayne Coffee was founded with a giving spirit and a big idea to enjoy delicious coffee roasted in Miami while helping save Biscayne Bay and the animals that live there. As a former food and beverage director, I can assure you these are some of the best quality beans on the planet. 10% of every coffee sold is donated to nonprofits to help preserve Biscayne Bay for all to enjoy. Visit BiscayneCoffee.com today and use promo code MENTOR at checkout to save 10% on your first order. Drink good coffee and create a good outcome. 